0: And God said, Let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth, above the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that is breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there
1: was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. That is the uh, scripture that likely everybody in the room has read. Because everybody, when you get ready to put your stake in the ground and say, I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to start on page one, you start there. And uh, many of us, myself included, have a hard time making it past that part. Um, especially when you get into the, some of the other books where you start talking about so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so and then so on and so forth and let's take a nap. Um, it's, but it, I think it's important for today's message um, and, and, and we'll get there in just a second and I'll, I'll, you'll kind of see how it all ties in together. I had the opportunity to join a team of church planners, I don't know, about a year ago Just in our area, in the South, Gulf South region, I wanted to get together and just talk about things. Um, We can identify with one another, uh, knowing what struggles we each have and what kind of victories we're having and those sorts of things. Because I got to tell you, um, and some of you have been with us every step of the way, that church planning is not easy and support is absolutely necessary, Uh, partners are absolutely necessary. Um, so we, we got together for lunch and a question that was asked, um, there was three questions that was asked that the, the, the church planners each had to kind of give a response to. And the first one was, what are some victories that you've experienced recently? What are some wins? What are some things that you you've, you feel like you guys are are doing well at? And so we got to talk about some of that. Um, and then the second thing was, uh, how, are, how are some ways that we could pray for you, some ways that you're struggling, some things that are, you know, difficult seasons or difficult places or difficult circumstances. How can we as church planners pray for one another? And then the third question was, what's your greatest resource? And that's, that's an important question to share among guys who are kind of pioneering and, 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 and just kind of paving the way in, in, the, in the story of church planning. Um, resources are, are very, very helpful and just all all areas of life, especially in church planning and what I didn't know is that this network um, luncheon that was taking place was happening all over the state in our in our in our area here in the south, but there were also three or four other places within our state that this meeting had happened previously, and whenever they got finished with all of these networks, the guys who were actually leading this they put get, they put together just some of the the popular responses to these three questions so that we can see what the guys up in West Monroe were talking about. What are their struggles? What are their wins? And what are their resources? And they could see what we're dealing with here in our area. Um, and it was very interesting because overwhelmingly, every planter that, that responded to that question of what's your greatest resource was people. You, know, you had a lot of guys who 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 were at the table and said, "Well, I'm using this program or I've got this system set up or we're doing something this way, and these things are great resources and I know this person and I know this the, these this website you can go to, and here's some all kinds of things, but the main answer, the overwhelming answer among all these church planners was that their greatest resource are their people, and that's a wise answer uh, because at the end of the day the kingdom of God is not about systems and processes and and Garbage like that. It's about people. That's what the kingdom of God's about. Why do I tell you all of this? Because we are at a point in the story of Nehemiah. We are in week nine of Nehemiah. And what we've seen is Nehemiah walking through just to catch everybody up to where we're at today. Nehemiah is a young Jewish man uh, who was exiled. He was part of the exiled ones to Persia. And he was, his vocation at this time, when we open up the story, his vocation, what he did for a living was he was cupbearer to the king. Uh, King Artaxerxes, and he served the king, which is a very prestigious um, position to have, uh, to to actually serve in the king's court. Uh, It's also a pretty uh, important position to have because uh, his role was to taste the food and to, to taste the wine and taste the drink so that so that he could make sure that no one was trying to poison the king. So he was kind of on the front lines of this thing. And if somebody did go after the king, he'd be the first one to take the shot. So it's an important sacrificial role, but it's also a very prestigious role because it puts you rubbing shoulders with the king, the most powerful man in the area at that time. Um, Nehemiah had his ear. Nehemiah had influence on him. And so we saw that. And uh, Nehemiah was, was on a journey one day when he came across some friends from Jerusalem who had... if it, David kind of opened up the story for us. Ezra and Nehemiah were actually one letter at, once, at one time. We've, in our English translation, we've kind of peeled them apart and made them their own two, two books. Uh, but they're actually one letter. And you would see in Ezra chapter one where some, some men went back to Jerusalem earlier on several years before uh, to start rebuilding the temple. And so Nehemiah runs into these guys and he asks the question, how are things in Jerusalem? You guys are there rebuilding the temple. How are things going? And what he learns is that things aren't going well. He said, man, the, the walls are still in rubble. Uh, I mean, we, we kind of got the temple put back together, but that's about it, man. The people are just sitting in shame. It's, it's a sad, sad thing. And this broke Nehemiah's heart. He heard about this. He was expecting great news about things that were going on in Jerusalem, and it absolutely crushed him. And so it, it sent him into this four-month season of fasting and praying and seeking God's hearts and God something has to happen here. Something has to change. That is my home. Those are my people. And I don't want that. You do not get glory, God, whenever your people are sitting in shame. And so he, after four months of weeping and praying and fasting, he approaches the king. And as he approaches the king, he, he asks for two things. The permission to go back and rebuild the city and the funding for it. That's a bold move to go before the king. That He doesn't care about Jerusalem at all. To go before the king and to say, I need to go back and rebuild the city and I need resources to do it. I need funding to do it. And so he was granted, under the grace of God, he was granted permission that the king said, go for it. And, and, and yes, whatever you need to, to make it happen, make it happen. And so that you can see God already just working in this situation. Um, and so Nehemiah leaves. He starts the journey to Jerusalem. When he gets there, he, he starts assessing the situation. And David would show, show us um, I believe it was in chapter three or four, maybe where w- before he just went right to work, he took a time of rest and he started assessing the situation and talking to people and listening. And if let me tell you something, if you want to talk about uh, rebuilding a community to revitalize a neighborhood. Don't start with what you think you ought to do. It's, it's you become a student of listening. You, you listen to the community. What are the needs? What do we need to do? How do we need to do this? So we see him begin to to, to have these conversations, but not long after after that, the work begins. Uh, The wall begins to to be rebuilt, and as it does, there are enemies who are outside of the city who begin collaborating together to say, we need to shut that operation down. Uh, that that is nothing that we want to see happen here, and so they start to do that, and uh, not only uh, while Nehemiah and and the team who are rebuilding the, the wall um, they, they prepare themselves, but they don't necessarily respond to it. They just continue building the wall and say, if something happens, our God is for us and we're, we're going to overcome. And so let's keep focused. Let's keep, keep working the job. And, now and so, so the, the story now transitions a little bit. Uh, and what we learned, I think it was Trent who, who showed us this in chapter 5, uh, that not only were there enemies on the outside of the city, but internally there became fighting, and bickering, and, and exploitation, and all of these things that were injustices that were going on to the less fortunate among one another. So you had enemies who were trying to attack from the outside, but you also had the same people, like the same citizens of Jerusalem who were, who were against one another, and who caused tension with one another. Um, and so Nehemiah stops to address that, and, and create a system of fairness. And then last week, what we saw was that the wall is almost complete. The wall is almost finished. Um, it, it only lacks uh, the gates in the wall to be set. And so, so it's, it's, it's really, really close, and the enemy sees this, and they turn the heat up. Uh, they, they, they got one last-ditch effort to try to, to try to take this thing down and to try to stop this madness. And so the big idea, what we learn starting now that the story's starting to unfold, the big idea is that Jesus Christ is the greater Nehemiah. That the story doesn't, what we would tend to do when we read the Bible is we, we read the Bible with a me-centered attitude to where you read and say, yeah, Nehemiah done this, so this is what I should do. Joseph did this, so this is what I should do. Abraham did this, so this is what I should do. And if we said that, and if we came with that attitude, we would be out of line because the entire story of God points us to Jesus. Jesus is our greater Joseph. Jesus is our greater Abraham. Jesus is our greater Nehemiah. And so we're, 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 we're starting to turn this ship now and we're starting to look and see that, that this story is about Jesus. That He's the great renewer. He is the great restorer. He is the great rebuilder. He left His prestige and stepped into our story. Do you see how, the, do you see how it's symbolic now with Nehemiah? How, how he was in a prestigious place Jesus was. And He saw brokenness. And He saw shame. And He saw sadness. And He steps into it. He goes after it. His heart breaks for it. So Jesus is our greater Nehemiah. And he's our great mobilizer. He's our great rebuilder. He's our great advocate. He's our great leader and our protector. Jesus is. Jesus is the main character in this story. And so... As he is the main character in this story, he doesn't want to just see us restored. Right? He just doesn't want to see us put back together. That's not he, he wants to see us thrive in a place, in this place that he's redeemed for us. He wants to see us flourish and thrive in this place of redemption and renewal. He doesn't just give us hope for for the future, for for a for a, a time to come. He gives us hope. Now, in this moment, Jesus Christ gives us hope. And I want to read, I'm not going to read the entire chapter. I, don't, I tried several times to try to push this chapter off on Trent or David. Uh, and out of the sovereignty and providence of God, it, I was unable to do so. Um, and if, you've, if, you've, if you were ambitious and you went and read Nehemiah chapter 7 before we started today, you'd, you'd say, well, I just got finished reading the phone book. Uh, it was it's kind of like that, you know, and so i 'm not going to read the whole chapter but i but we are going to put a light on this chapter and and kind of tell you what 's going on here but i'm going to read uh, verses one through five, Nehemiah chapter seven verses one through five. Now, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was more faithful and god fearing. And a God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut, the bar, shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard post and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first. And I found in it written. And he goes on to say, we won't continue reading it, he goes on to say, here's all of the people who we begin calling back into Jerusalem. From every tribe, from every family, from every place, we want a portion of those people to come and repopulate the city. And that's what happens in the rest of the chapter of Nehemiah. We took so many people from this family. We took so many people from this family and we had them come to Jerusalem to to repopulate the city. So our attention has been fixed on rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem for for six chapters. And you just saw there as chapter 7 opened, the wall has been rebuilt. The gates have been set. The job has been complete. And here's where we're going today. A city... Is much more than walls. A city is much more than gates. And a city is much more than houses. A city is made of people. That's what makes a city a city. It's people. If you go to a place that's been abandoned where there's no one there, you wouldn't call it a city. You would call it history. It's, it's, not, it's not populated. There's no life there. So, so this is what a city is. It is a people. And in the first half of this book, the people existed for the wall. The people came and the people, the people rebuilt the wall. Now the wall must exist for the people. The main objective through the story of Nehemiah is not about a wall. It's about people. And you see all of chapter 7 saying this. That it, here's what happens. We build this wall. We rebuild this city so that we can have a wall. No. So that people can come, so that now well, let's get people, let's populate the city because it's about people. The big win for Nehemiah is not to get the wall rebuilt. The big win for Nehemiah is about creating a place where people can be brought in for the glory of God. And that's the big win for him. So people, people matter to God. People matter to God. And I want you, and this, is, this is why we read the chapter. Uh, the first chapter of Genesis. This is why I wanted to point us there because you and I did not create God. It, it wasn't our idea and we don't get to say who God is. He is who He is. And it wasn't our idea. It wasn't our initiation that, that caused God to be created. He is who He is. And if you took your Bible and you read it from cover to cover, you couldn't skip the glaring reality that people matter to God. People absolutely matter to God. And you and I have been given different abilities and talents. Um, Some of you are artists. And when you work to create something... Uh, it, it just it's natural that you step back and you just kind of look at it and you admire what you've created. Or if you're a builder, uh, you build something and when you're done building it, you just kind of stand back and admire, okay, it's finished work, look at it, it's beautiful. You, you admire it. If you're a writer, you'll write and then you'll back away and you'll read the story that you wrote and you'll admire the story that you wrote. And you see God doing all of this in Genesis chapter 1. That He's creating and He's stepping back and He's admiring His creation. He's, he's creating on the next day and He steps back and He admires what He's done. And this goes on and on and on. And when you get to the sixth day after God has created the Pacific Ocean and after God has created Mount Everest, He creates mankind and His reaction is different. He says, first of all, He says, let us make man in our own image. He didn't say that for any other thing that he created, but he did say that for mankind. And when he he created mankind, he stepped back and he says, this is very good. All those other things were pretty good. This is very good. Humanity is the pinnacle of God's creation. Humanity is. You and I are the Imago Dei, the image of God, the image bearers of God. We are at the pinnacle of his creation. So Sorry, PETA, right? The black tip fox or whatever is not the pinnacle of God's creation. Mankind is. The homeless man who sleeps on the corner just down the street from us is more beautiful than any sunset or majestic building that you have ever laid your eyes on. Can you believe that? Can you absolutely believe that? That He holds more worth, more splendor, more value than any of mankind's most greatest creations. And even more than any of God's other creations. Mankind. People matter to God. People matter to God. And wouldn't it be a great deal if we could take this, take this Bible, take the story and read it and it would go on to say, you matter to God because you are awesome. Like you are fantastic, and that's why you matter to God. Wouldn't it be great if the story read that way? But here's the deal. In our nature, we don't like God. It is in our very nature to not like God. And I know that that might land on you a little heavy, but it's the truth, and that's what Scripture would teach us. That in our very own nature, our brokenness, because of what we see in Genesis 3, if you ever made it to chapter 3 in your new Bible reading dedication time, if you made it to chapter 3, what you would see is mankind hates God. That mankind would rather be their own God, or to serve some other God, but not the God God not our God. And so we see that in our nature. We don't like God. You and I are not a people who are... are, We're good people, but we're occasionally bad. Like that's not who we are. Do not be deceived into thinking that you're just a good person who occasionally does bad things. You're a bad person, and that is why you do those bad things. And that's what Scripture would tell us. Whether you're really, really religious or whether you're really, really irreligious, whether you would be a devoted Christian or whether you don't believe in God at all, we're all playing on the same field here. We all, we all have level footing here. We're all bad. We all do not like God in our nature. Romans 3 verse 10 would say, As it is written, none is righteous. No one in this room, no one in this community, no one on this planet, no one is righteous. Not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Is this landing on you kind of heavy? It should be. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery." In the way of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's what Scripture would give us. That's our indictment. So you're not just a good person who occasionally does bad things. We're all broken. We're all bad. We all dislike God in our very nature. And so if that's hard for you to believe, maybe, maybe I would have you go um, to children's church for a little while. And so you would understand that all of us are broken. See, I guarantee you that there are some in that room that bite that have not been taught to bite. Their parents didn't say, this is how you do it, kid. Look, mom, give me your arm and bite. That's in their nature to say no, to rebel. It's not taught. It's in our DNA. It's been handed to us from our father. This behavior is not taught. And so wouldn't it be great If the climax of this entire story landed on us, wouldn't it be a cool thing that it would land on us? But it doesn't. The story doesn't land on us. The story doesn't have its apex and lands right in the center of us. It's not about us. The story is not about us. The the story of Nehemiah, nor any other story in this Bible, is about us. It's about what God has done, who He is, and how we react to that. And what happens to us as a result of that? And so we, uh, I hope I've established this that we are all utterly wicked. All of us are utterly wicked. And God loves you anyway. God loves you anyway. We are so valuable to Him, not because of any inherent righteousness of our own, but from His righteousness. God loves us. And this is the reason we celebrate Easter. If you don't think God loves you where you are, look at the cross. Look at what He did. While we were yet sinners, while we were God-haters, while we didn't even respect or acknowledge God, His Son hung on a cross for us. So that's how much He loves us. And so maybe to tie in with where I'm going next, I, maybe, I just want to take a, a snippet from C.S. Lewis. He wrote a book called The Weight of Glory. And this is what he wrote. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, who we work with, marry, snub, exploit mortal horrors, or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are not to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind. And it is, in fact, the merriest of kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumptions. People matter to God. God takes you serious today where you are. God is serious about you. He, you matter to him, and so that's the big idea, but maybe maybe let me just say another thing that the church exists for people. The church exists for people, and I know what you're probably saying, hold up, Blake, John Piper said the church exists for the glory of God, not, you know, and, I, and I get that, and that is true, but but maybe that's a broad thing to say, and maybe let, let's let's try to drive it home. What does what does that mean that the church exists? For the glory of God. How does God get glory for Himself? How does He accomplish that? From people who move from hating Him to loving Him. That's how God gets glory. By rescuing people out of darkness and bringing them into the light. That's how God gets glory. By redeeming broken people who cannot fix themselves. We cannot fix ourselves. In that state of desperation that I've explained to you that we all sit in, we cannot pull ourselves out of that. We cannot fix those things that are broken. We, we have no ability to do that. And if we had the ability to, if you are still under this presumption that you have the ability to save yourself, then might I say the crucifixion was a waste for you. That Christ didn't have to come. But He did have to come because you can't fix you. You can't fix you. And so God gets glory by bringing people back into his presence to live with him and to live for him. That's how he gets glory. And this is exactly where the story of Nehemiah is going. The goal wasn't to rebuild the wall. The goal was to create a place where people could come in and thrive for the glory of God. That was the point. So we're not called just to exist. You just don't walk through life existing. We exist. And you heard me say it at in the announcements We exist to make much of God in our neighborhoods and to the nations by reflecting Jesus Christ. That's what we exist for. We exist primarily for the people that are in this neighborhood who are currently not occupying a seat in this room. That's why the church exists. It exists for the people in this neighborhood who are currently not occupying a seat in this room. This is why the story of Nehemiah doesn't end at chapter 6. The story's done, right? The wall's built. We still have another half of this book to go though because the point of the story is not the wall. The point of the story are the people. People who are far from God need to be brought close to God. And so the church exists for people. We exist primarily for those who aren't in this room. Let me take you to a text, Matthew chapter 28. If you've walked by a church once, uh, you probably got some of this verse on you. I mean, this is something that we preach. Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so m- let me just bring this home for you. Yes, the church exists for people, but you exist for people. God cares about people. It's why the church is here, but as an individual, you exist for other people. You do not exist for yourself. And I'm talking to a room who we all struggle with this. That our life is just enraptured by who we are and self-serving and and me-centered. And what I'm trying to tell you is Scripture would always point to say, This story is not about you. You do not exist for you. You exist for people. People that God cares for. People that God has sent His Son to die for. To rescue, to redeem, to restore, to renew, and to be brought back into the family so that they too can participate in this story of going after the people that God cares for. So you do not exist for yourself. You exist for other people. And when you become a believer... Um, one of the things that that verse would tell us is uh, go and make disciples and baptize them. That's the mark, by the way, that you are a believer. It does not make you a believer. It's the mark that you are a believer. And the reason that when we baptize you, we don't hold you down for seven minutes, is because God's got purpose for you. Otherwise, we want you to go to glory, right? Get this brother in heaven, man. But we don't do that. We let you come up. So that, So that you can go for those people that you exist for. Those that God cares for. And that's what Matthew 28 would tell us. The goal is not to just have a wall. The goal is to find people to be brought into the glorious presence of God through Jesus Christ. That's the point of the story. And as a church, we do not exist to produce killer Sunday morning experiences. Look around. That's not why we exist. We don't give a flip about any of that. We don't exist to have an inward-focused, me-centered community group experience every week. That's not why we exist. We exist as a church to make much of God in the neighborhoods and to the nations by reflecting Jesus Christ. We do not exist for you to come here to hear the Bible preached so that you can get spiritually obese and lazy. That's not why we're here. So in order to love God, in order to make much of God, you have to care about people. You have to care about people. Matthew 22, Jesus was having this encounter with this, this scribe, and He says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Like, what's the, what's the top thing, man? What's the top shelf? What's level 10? If I reach that, what is it? And Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first greatest commandment and the second is like it you shall love your neighbor as yourself those two cannot be detached from one another they cannot be detached from one another you cannot love God without loving people your love for God only extends as far as your love for the the least person on your love list like that's it so you You can't just run around saying, oh, I love Jesus and ignore people because God cares for people. And so for those who love God, who would identify themselves as a follower of Jesus. Here's what I want you to take away today. Acts chapter 17. We won't go there, but I'll tell you that in Acts chapter 17, it would say that God sovereignly chose when and where you would live. God sovereignly chose that. That's written in the story that He has appointed a time and a place for you. And for those who are really scared and frightened about things, He's also appointed the time of your death. That's in your story too. God has sovereignly chose all of this. He's placed you where you are and He's done that for a purpose. He's done that for a reason. Every single believer, if you're that person who's identified themselves with Christ in this room, every single one of you have a sphere of influence. Every single one of you. You have family, you have friends, you have coworkers none of which your pastors can, can reach and, and, and influence. It's for you to do. It's your job to do this. None of these people we would be able to, to reach. It's God. Placing these people, sovereignly placing these people in your life. And guess what? The people that are in your life, they're, they're not meant to be extras in a movie about you. All right, those people that exist, the people that's in your circle of influence, they don't, they're just not people that's part of your story. They're part of God's story, and you're part of God's story. And so it's always lifting up our eyes and looking saying, God, what would you have me do? What's How would I encounter this person? How would I care for this person? How would I love my neighbor? What have I done for myself today that I haven't done for my neighbor? Because guess what? I can only love God so much as I've loved my neighbor. So God, how do I love you more? Love your neighbor more. And that is why you exist. You exist so that those people in your circle might come to know and love Jesus more fully. That's why you exist. And so for those of you who would not identify yourselves with Jesus, who are here today and say, you know what? Um, I don't believe in Christ and and I'm not even sure about any of that. Let me first of all say I I have mad respect for you for showing up here. It took a lot of boldness and courage for you to show up here today. It really did. But you need to know this this morning, that just as you are, just as you are, God takes you very, very seriously. God takes you very, very seriously. He sees your pain. He sees you in your brokenness and sin. And the invitation isn't to come and to conform to some religious practices and religious activities so that God might like you more. That's not the invitation. That's not Christianity. Christianity, the story goes like this, that the sin that you find yourself in today, God loves you right there in the middle of it. He loves you right there in the middle of it. And He loves you so much that He don't want you to stay there. That's the story of Christianity. And I'm able to confidently say that today because we celebrate Easter today. That the cross of Christ happened for us who are in this room before we were born. Knowing that we would be born into sinfulness and brokenness and rebellion. Christ died for us. That's great news. That's great news for for those of us who understand the reality that we can't fix ourselves. We can't fix us. That we need someone to step into our story and to fix us. And we see that in Christ. That Jesus stepped out of heaven and into the mess and brokenness of our lives. And you'll see that in John chapter 1. The story will just open up and says that Jesus, the God-man, put on flesh and came and dwelt among us. To be like us. Yet to remain holy. Jesus Christ came and did the very thing that we're unable to do. To satisfy the wrath of God for us. So that we can be brought into the family. To be brought into the story. That's the purpose. God loves people. And so Jesus came to take on the death for our sins that that we had to face yet we don't have to do anymore that Christ has done that for us that he has drank the cup of wrath for you and for me so that we can be forgiven so that we can be loved so that we could be accepted that we could be brought in to the community of God and so the invitation for you as a person who might not identify yourself as a believer is to come and be part of this family of God come and be changed Come and have your life renewed, restored, rebuilt so that you can be written into the story, written into the family of God. So let's pray.